Testaments uh, quoted by our Lord in the book of Hebrews and uh, the book of Acts uh, by the Apostle Paul, and three times in the book of Revelation, including the passage I'm about to read you. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, I'm sorry, I put the wrong verse in the bulletin by mistake. This is the letter to Thyatira, which starts out in 28, but in 24, excuse me, in uh, 18, rather, it should be 18, not 28, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, where we read, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, indeed, we pray that by the revelation of your Spirit that you would seal these words to our heart and to our church, that we in our day and our age, when Jezebel's whispers are again heard, would be wise and understanding, both convicted and compassionate, that we might be able to be uh, leaders and rulers even among the nations as you have promised, keeping your works to the end, having power, we pray, that you would give us that uh, same boldness of spirit to be able to do what ought to be done, to say what needs to be said, and so to have authority over the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Washington Post, dateline April 20th of this year. The headline reads, These Christian leaders embraced sex positivity and now preach it. It says, Traditionally, most Christian leaders have accepted the teaching that sex should occur only in marriage. However, over the past two decades, Americans have become increasingly accepting of sex outside marriage, LGBTQ relationships, and more, according to 
Gallup, a poll, thanks in part to the ubiquity of these views on social media, some Christians say they are coming to view a healthy relationship with one's sexuality as spiritually beneficial and even in line with the Bible. The 2020 Pew Research Center report that reported that half of U.S. Christians consider casual sex, defined in the survey as sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship, acceptable, at least some of the time, as more Christians are being exposed to alternative readings and less talked about parts of the Bible, some are denouncing the directives to wait until marriage to have sex or to condemn forms of sexual expression such as LGBTQ relationships and sex work, i.e. prostitution, end quote. May 6th of this year, same paper, Washington Post, headline, After years of debate, conservatives split from the United Methodist Church. The article says, After decades of rancorous debate over the ordination and marriage of LGBTQ United Methodists, a special session of the UMC's general conference and three proponents, uh, th- three postponements, rather, of a vote to formally split the denomination, the schism finally came. That's how Reverend Keith Boyette, chairman of the Transitional Leadership Council, described the launch of a new denomination in a statement published days earlier on its website. It continues, quote, The postponement of the General Conference moved many people to say they were tired of waiting and tired of the conflict not being addressed and resolved by the United Methodist Church. Delegates have debated such questions about sexuality at every quadrennial meeting of the United Methodist Church since 1972, when the language was first added to the denomination's Book of Discipline that, quote, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Conservatives, frustrated by the continuing debate, threatened to leave anyway. Finally, a group representing all different theological viewpoints within the denomination brokered a deal to create a separate, quote, traditionalist Methodist denomination. That's from this summer. Asian Post, first century. The headline reads, The Young Church of Christ in Thyatira has agreed to an affirming affirming and embracing stance, welcoming people not only of all religious persuasions, but also of sexual expression. Quote, We have ostracized so many people because of who they are, who they really are. As a leader in the church who prophesies on many Sunday mornings, concluding, we need to preach a gospel of inclusion and love. We can't get to be where we need to be without it. All right, I obviously made up that uh, last article, but the quote is a real quote from a woman in Ohio who's now a retired bishop in an article from that same Washington Post this summer. It could have been written in the first century. Whenever we study the Bible, we need to remember that that we have a context, yes, but the Scripture has a context as well, and we need to remember that context and that original audience, especially 
as we consider the book of Revelation, so that we don't end up with facts that are more hysterical than historical. I want to begin then by telling you a little about this city of Thyatira, which does seem to be also strangely contemporary. Thyatira is located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. I know you wanted to know that. And uh, would have been the fourth stop on a uh, letter carrier's circular journey on the road to Asia, delivering these seven letters. They all go just in order as the road would take you. This, however, is not a city of any political importance. It has no special religious importance. Thyatira had no glorious past. No famous figure was born there. It was not a cultural or academic center. It had no harbor or library. Even George Washington did not sleep there. Although uh, there was a Roman garrison stationed there, its job was not to defend the city, but to fight a delaying action against any invader long enough so that Pergamum up the road could prepare for a coming attack. In short, Thyatira was considered, even by the Roman military, as dispensable. It's hardly mentioned anywhere in the first century literature. Pliny the Elder, however, uh, who spoke so highly of Pergamos, writes at one point now about uh, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. <laughs> it was a working town, what we might call a factory or mill town in our day. It had a number of guilds, ancient labor unions uh, for wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, carpenters, bronze workers, and, and several other ones. Um, and the most famous person from the city of Thyatira is Lydia, one of Paul's first converts in, actually, I guess I should probably say as far as we know, the first convert in Philippi, a dealer in purple cloth, which also, by the way, had a guild in her hometown in Thyatira. Um, this is all important because most of the people involved in the economic activity and life of this city would have belonged to one of the trade guilds. Guilds that all had their own patron gods or goddesses. Guilds that regularly held feasts that involved idolatry, or at least prayers, meat, and wine offered to idols, their patron deity. Guild meals were also infamous for degrading into evenings filled with drunkenness and sexual immorality, which even was a part of the worship of some of those Roman deities. Why is that so important? Because, you see, every Christian that was part of this city's life would have found this a tremendous difficulty. Could they still be part of a trade guild? Could they attend? Could they participate? Could they sign the diversity statement that say that they welcomed and affirmed everyone who bowed to the idol? Would they be able to keep their jobs? Or would they be permanently cut off from the economic life and prosperity of the city and perhaps even forced to flee to another? We know from Corinth and other places that this was a big problem early on. Christians were giving different answers to these questions. And there was even a prophetess, we read, in Thyatira, who seemed to have settled the question beyond, the, the, beyond dispute. The word of the Lord had come to her. 
saying it was okay. That uh, idolatry business, that meat sacrifice to idols, that sexual immorality, that's okay. Well, Jesus writes his longest letter to this least known, least remarkable, least important city. And I take a little comfort from the fact that since living in a small town, I, I can remember that the Lord both knows and cares for us as well. He writes a letter, the longest letter of the seven, to this little place, commending it for its faith, hope, and love, but warning it of this deadly problem that's now in their midst. Let's uh, have the outline today, praise for the church, warning for the church, and promise for the church, and then we'll think a little more about how this too-close-for-comfort situation still helps us in our day. Number one, praise for the church. Praise for the church. Um, Jesus praised the church in Thyatira for demonstrating the love that Ephesus, you remember, had lacked, for maintaining the faith which you remembered had been imperiled at Pergamos, and for the patient endurance that was shown in the difficult days of Smyrna. Indeed, um, wherever there's love, there's going to be service. Wherever there's faith flourishing, their people will patiently endure and do good work. This church was not coasting, right? The last works are more than the first. Where Ephesus was backsliding, Thyatira was advancing. And it's great to see a church that is growing in grace and fruitfulness. In fact, all the churches of Revelation are are, uh, of all the churches of Revelation, no church gets more praise than Thyatira. It, it was a beautiful garden in which some of the best Christian graces were blossoming. Humble ministry, patient endurance, faith and good works. Jesus commends them heartily. This is the praise. Only one verse, but it is more than the others got. Um, but at greater length, we come secondly to the warning for the church. The warning. The church of Thyatira like so much of the Western world today, was suffering from a case of spiritual osteoporosis. Yes, they had a weak backbone. Verse 20, You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Most of the rest of the warning deals with this problem. It's astonishing to realize that People who profess Christ and attain positions of influence in the church may be very well advancing the devil's doctrine and living. But it's even more astonishing to, to see how they are for years allowed to remain and to, to grow in influence, as was apparently happening, for it seems that she has led some astray. Jezebel was probably not her real name, of course, that would be a bitter irony, right? Um, but it did underscore just how evil this Thyatiran woman really was. This prophetess of God was a tool of the devil. Let me remind you of her namesake. That is the real Queen Jezebel, whose story is recorded in 1 Kings 16 through 19. She was the wife of a weak and wavering man named King Ahab king of the northern kingdom. Jezebel's father was a guy named Ethbal, a priest of Baal who had succeeded to the throne of Sidon 
by murdering his predecessor, Mice Guy. The worship of Baal uh, also included gross sexual immorality, which I won't describe to you now. I mean, I already read Song of Solomon. How much more stuff do you want tonight, okay? The Jezebel, Jezebel persuaded her husband Ahab that it would be great to have a temple of Baal right here in Israel, which he built and where Baal was then worshipped in the worst way. When that uh, temple was complete, Jezebel supported then 850 prophets of her immoral cult while she killed off every prophet of God that she could possibly lay her hands on. You remember it was that same Jezebel who threatened to kill Elijah after he called down fire from heaven and had some of her prophets of Baal executed. Yeah, that's the woman Jezebel. Don't name your daughter that. A woman of the church in Thyatira who was claiming to be a prophetess had led others in the church to embrace these views of idolatry and immorality. Uh, immorality. She was teaching, you see, what was in effect a kind of compromise that some suffering Christians in Thyatira would only be too ready to hear. That when they have this dilemma, is there any way that I can keep my job and provide for my family? She comes through with the answer. The Lord says you may. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality. The church, for its part, allowed, or some of you might have tolerated this woman, uh, suggesting that many in the church didn't agree with her or follow her teaching. Nevertheless, they refused to deal with her. And that was the issue that the Lord brings up here. Unlike the Ephesians, who would not tolerate false teachers and drove them out of the church, we read, this church allowed the woman to continue. In fact, Jesus, for his part, says, I gave her time to repent. In other words, uh, by his spirit, she knows what she's doing. The fact that punishment, though, did not immediately overtake her, or sinners in general, is so often misunderstood that it will never undertake them. Jesus says that's not the case. Sickness and death are the punishments here threatened upon both her and her followers. Her bed of sin is going to become a bed of suffering. The pleasures will be turned into pains of afflictions, and her children are just as doomed as the children of the real Jezebel and Ahab were. Well, verse 23 is the only sentence in this letter that, uh, sorry, and I guess I say the only sentence in all these letters that uh, refers to all the churches at once, um, besides the phrase, what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, when he, verse 23, the Lord says, I will kill her children with death, and then all the churches shall know that I am he who searches minds and hearts. In other words, y'all pay attention to what I'm about to do in this church. And a reminder that all the churches are being addressed in all seven of these letters to take heed about these problems and to deal with them on their own. Word for us then. Also, verse 24, this matter of the depths of Satan, so-called, or as they say, probably ironic, the woman might have claimed to be introducing her followers to the deep things of God, but in fact, the, they were the deep things of Satan. And uh, William Woodward, old Puritan, put it this way, the garments of Christ's righteousness must never be made the cloak of sin. 
Well, the grace of God has appeared, Paul wrote, to teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, as the Lord has given himself to purify for himself a people for his own, zealous for good works. That is the goal, and this woman was teaching the very opposite. Well, uh, lest we take comfort because we have some outward conformity, haven't eaten in an idol's temple today. Uh, no temple prostitutes have been around my house. That's, that's great. But remember the Lord himself in verse 23 saying, it is he who searches hearts and minds as well. The Lord knows our hearts and our lives down to the bottom. He knows our motives and attitudes and whether our faith and love, our real obedience, are simply an outer show to keep our reputation intact. He knows what we think and how we live from the inside out even the parts that we hide from others. I am he, he says, who searches the minds and the hearts. And all of y'all will know because of this, for what I'm doing in the church in Thyatira, that I'm the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Bringing us to point three. Now the promise for the church, the promise. And again, I want you to feel the, the full force of this as some of our brothers and sisters are are struggling or worried about their situation. Following Christ in Thyatira, for many anyway, meant the prospect of real financial loss. It meant being cut off from their hope of success in their society. It meant a significant measure of ostracism. And, and, and Jesus didn't hide it or sugarcoat it. He told them of the danger of following this woman but offering a magnificent promise and saying, I'm going to repay each of you according to your deeds. There it is. In particular, verse 26, to him who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, not the works of Jezebel, I'm going to give him power or authority over the nations. Then quoting Psalm 2, the psalm we just sung of Jesus, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They, the nations, shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Uh, Jesus, I should have mentioned, is quoting from Jeremiah 16. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Jeremiah 16, 17. Jesus takes these words directly to himself and then gives this promise of Psalm 2. I'm going to reward you according to your works. To Jezebel and her ilk, misery and death. To the one who holds to my works, authority over the nations and the bright morning star. Well, I want to say briefly, the gospel is a message of forgiveness of sins, of salvation as a free gift of our righteousness before God, being not a righteousness of our own, but of Christ's righteousness reckoned and imputed to those who trust in him. As we so often read, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, we must understand that there is a cost of discipleship. That is to say, the moment we receive the free gift of God for eternal life, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will make us pay dearly. And that cost of discipleship, the cost of being a Christian Thyatira was so great that people were willing to follow Jezebel the prophetess to her doom. 
And the book of Revelation is a book about a great cost. It's going to be one way or it's going to be another. There's going to be a cost of faithfulness, but a very great cost of unfaithfulness. It's a book about a reward, the reward of the wicked, but a very great reward for those who maintain their walk with Christ. For God's people were told again and again, those who want a much easier walk in the days of Jezebel, you will reap Jezebel's destruction, but to you who follow the Lord, you will reign with him forever. And this, by the way, is introducing a theme that comes up again and again. It's especially strong in the second half of Revelation. Uh, chapter 14, I heard a voice in heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they shall rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. That is to say, for a very great reward. Chapter 19, about the final day. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Fine linen, which stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Chapter 20, the sea gave up her dead, and the, uh, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. End of, verse, uh, end of chapter 22. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. So... We understand how to hold these doctrines together, the free gift of God and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet at the same time, as Jesus says again and again and again, to Jezebel and her ilk, utter destruction, to those who keep my word, the loftiest of elevation. Uh, and it was even Paul that said to us, each of us will give an account of himself to God, or again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It was Peter who said, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And as any regular reader knows of the Bible, we Christians will have a judgment. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but some, Paul says earnestly, are going to make it as though through fire. Um, our, our lives will be examined and recompensed appropriately, and there will be a reward for the faithful all out of proportion to anything that was done. To the one who comes with five minas, you know, a few coins. Jesus will say, as it were, take charge of five cities in my kingdom. I have inherited a kingdom, and you, blessed of the Lord, are going to inherit it as well. And so every letter to the seven churches begins, I know your works. I, I stress this because there is so much danger on every hand, right? There is a danger and on every side of this subject. There's a danger of being a legalist in uh, having a works righteousness or counting up your merits in the hope that you may earn your way to heaven, even if only by your supposed sincerity. Beware legalism. There is a danger of ritualism that by taking the name of Christ or going to church or receiving the sacraments that God will approve of us, therefore. Beware of ritualism. There's the danger of antinomianism, that it doesn't really matter whether or not we are walking in the darkness or walking in the light, serving Satan or serving God, idols or the living and true Lord. It doesn't matter, say some. Beware antinomianism. 
Jesus is quoting this second psalm and its magnificent promises, which we would have not dared to take to ourselves, except that the Lord himself says, look, that, that authority, that rule that I am receiving, I have received over the nations, that the nations are my inheritance, the earth itself is my kingdom and domain, I will share that dominion with you. Unclear whether it's uh, at the moment reigning with him above or participating in Christ's judgment as the saints will judge the world or reigning forevermore with him because all three are true. Nevertheless, uh, the promise of Psalm 2 is given to us. And what is the promise of the morning star? Uh, That's a curious one. doesn't seem to be answered until the last chapter where Jesus says at the very end of the book, I am the root and descendant of David and I am the bright and morning star. Jesus is not only promising to give us his kingdom and our reign in it, according to what we've done. He is promising to give us himself, a precious, the most precious gift to his faithful people that we may enter into his glory through union with Christ and share in all of his glory, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Some ten cities, some five cities, some is through fire perhaps, depending on that word to come. But Jesus makes a promise. Well, that's, the, that's it for the letter. I hope you understand the, the outline of the letter. I would like to consider with you for a few minutes what that might apply to us today. It's, uh, it's been said well that an open mind, or I guess I should say the point of an open mind, like an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. <laughs> Jezebel's voice is not silent in the 21st century any more than it was in the 1st century. You can count on the evil one still whispering that word to you to make your life easier in a world that is both idolatrous and immoral, in so many ways the same antagonistic to the salvation that we have received in Jesus. There is therefore a great need in our time for men and women, indeed boys boys and girls, to be gripped by the truth of God's word in such a way that they will be able to challenge the falsehoods on every side on the basis of what God has spoken to offer a word of rebuke to the prophets or prophetesses of our day. We need people who understand what God calls the church to do, certainly, and without apology do it. Our society absolutely believes that there are no absolute truths. They absolutely believe that, no absolutes. And the only non-negotiable truth is that everyone is right. Unless, of course, someone claims to be right, in which case they're wrong and intolerant to boot. You got to think about that one for a minute. Um, The sexual life of mankind in particular has always been a great index of its overall morality. It's one of the great errors, if not one of the stupidities of modern thought, that men can be really good, though they're sexually corrupt. It has never been that way, and it will not be so in the future. Nevertheless, you know what we're facing. There is an unrelenting attack on sexual morality at the most basic level on a grand scale, in the press, in industry, in entertainment, in government, in education. I mean, they got Disney. Oh, Disney. 
And this makes it all the more imperative that Christians have some intelligent grasp on the Bible's teaching because the, the whisper comes from Jezebel. And, and you know, it sounds so good. It really goes just along with the spirit of the age and it makes our lives so much easier. And, and, it, finds, and it finds some welcome home among the people of God, sadly. Paul describes in strong words the deceitfulness of sin. He says over and over again, do not be deceived. Especially in this matter, this degrading nature of sexual sins, which are being made uh, more acceptable, how they are, well, in the book, letter to the Romans, uh, just one more downward step on a culture that is rebelling against God and being given over to the ungodliness and the unrighteousness that they desire and deserve as a preparation for judgment. That's all in Romans 1, where we read ugly words like vile passions against nature, burning in lust, committing what is shameful, error, each word very ugly, all that just about sexual immorality and the depravity that's associated with homosexuality there in particular. It's because of such sins that God has sent us a Savior. Do not be deceived. Such were some of you, he said to the church in Corinth. He, he says to them who were deceived, don't you realize that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body. He didn't just come to save your soul. That Gnostic approach to things. No, no, no. You, body and soul, you are members of His body, of His flesh and of His bones. Don't you know, he asks, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a harlot? Certainly not. Well, again, he says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Uh, with many such words, he seeks to take away the confusing siren song of the spirit of the age. Jude, Jude for his part, warns against those teachers, quote, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. a doctrine that in the 20th century became known as the doctrine of the carnal Christian in some circles and other things. People who went forward at large evangelistic campaigns were assured that no matter what they did from now on, no matter what happened to them, that they were on the way to heaven and they are never to doubt their salvation, saved by grace through faith and not of works, you see. And people then continued to live like the devil and pay Christ no more thoughts. They were called carnal Christians. Oh, Jesus was still in their orbit, but not on the throne, they were told. Living in the flesh, though saved, ministers had quite a task, especially in the South, calling people to biblical self-examination as a result of this, and it was a hard job that congregations soon got tired of. People had itchy ears, and so they found false teachers, and so the siren song continues even in the Bible belt. That's why the churches, of all the things that they could put in front, right, are not advertising soup kitchens, but rainbow flags. That's how we got to this 
state. And when you're determined to live in a certain way, sooner or later, you will find someone to tell you it's okay. Sooner or later, you'll find somebody who understands you and loves you unconditionally and who truly believes in grace. And the Word of God from beginning literally to the end says, do not be deceived. I will say in conclusion that there is another important side to this equation. Such were some of you. Such were many of you. A number of people, even here, who made a practice of sexual sin, who left it behind when you became a Christian, who carried it along for a while when you were a Christian. That number is very large. And among such people are some folk even of the homosexual kind. I've met some, so have you. And they are ashamed of their past, as every Christian is ashamed of the sins of their past. But we are not ashamed of them. That when one turns to the Lord, we glory in the fact that they, like we, are no longer the people that they once were and no longer live the lives that they once lived. We love them and are proud of them. And they have an important role to play in this society. And this is where the whole debate is, is causing a great deal of difficulty. What we really need in mass is for those, for example, especially who had uh, been homosexuals for years and who have uh, left such a life and uh, found far greater happiness, joy, satisfaction, like my friend Rosaria Butterfield, of course, I bring her to your attention, and so many others like him that that this idea that the culture has that uh, uh, people have to be affirmed in order to be happy and that there is the immutability in these things, well, that's clearly not the case. We need a great, great number of Christians to stand forth and say, well, such were one of me. I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Uh, uh, this, this is, uh, it's, it's foolish what the world is saying, but, w- but where are the Christians to stand up and say, well, I am one of those? Um, unfortunately, it's a difficult time for such Christians. Uh, they, they hear these condemnations in Scripture. It's such an embarrassing sin anyway. They find it difficult to, to raise their hand and to say, such was I, right? Uh, and so I do want to underscore that um, we glory in the fact that they are no longer the people no longer living the lives that they once lived. We love them and are proud of them. And every Christian who struggles with temptation in any way finds that that trial, even that ongoing temptation, also conceals a calling, a vocation, a way of serving God for His glory. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are ways in which a certain past or even a certain temptation in the present can make a man or a woman uniquely able to serve others. C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter that he'd received from a man who had been in sexual sin with other men. This man found that there were certain kinds of sympathy and understanding that he felt that his affection now as a Christian had given him that other Christians did not and could not have. I I guarantee you that all good ministries to homosexuals trade on the fact 
that there are a great many people out there in the world who have turned to the Lord, who have been washed, sanctified, justified, and able to minister to others with a special understanding. Such people feel that perhaps no one understands them. They don't know what they're going through. We know there are many people who know very well, who are acquainted with the fear and shame and despair on the one hand, and the power of Christ, and the light of God's Word, and the strength that He supplies to overcome in the Lord's words, to conquer, to become victors. To those who overcome, the promises are made. And these Christians, men or women, have special lives to offer back to God. Their lives are made difficult by various uh, sins of the past, weaknesses, temptations. I've, I've called upon some of you who have found yourself in the depths of sin uh, in this area or that to be able to help younger Christians who have such struggles. And I thank you for being willing to do that. Yes, I know what it's like to be an adulterer, a fornicator, whatever it is. How wonderful it is when we have brothers and sisters who can come with love and sympathy and say, but in the words of Revelation 2 and 3, seven times over, I have found how to overcome in the Lord Jesus. We all have a life to offer back to God, but those who have particular sins of the past and temptations have a particular ministry that you can fulfill in the lives of others. And so do not be ashamed. You can tell me things privately that I'll be happy to keep in private confidence until the time is needed, perhaps. But we are reminded for all of us, godliness in the Bible is a matter of blood, sweat, and tears. Salvation is the free gift. The world, the flesh, and the devil will make us pay dearly. But every Christian who denies himself and follows the Lord Jesus, no matter what, is given a great promise, not only to be a victor himself or herself, but to rule the nations with a rod of iron, to dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, and to receive the promise of the morning star, Jesus himself, by which we are able to overcome. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That is the promise of victory in Revelation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to show us what you yourself see. We pray that we would have the eyes uh, that our Lord recommends here, that we are uh, those who see hearts and minds searched and secrets revealed. We pray that you would show us those areas of our lives where we are in truth compromising, rationalizing, or are deceived. Convict us. Make us uh, eager to enter the lists, not to tolerate anymore the falsehood in the world or especially in the church. We pray that you would lead us not into temptation, steer us clear of the Jezebels of this life, Give us grace to recognize the false prophet when one appears. We pray for those who have been so delivered. We pray that they also would take comfort in the victory that they have and will have in Jesus, and that you would make them faithful and fruitful in their ministry, as they are able to speak with particular power and testimony 
in ways in which the world will listen, that they will not listen to us. We pray that they would be bold to declare that there is a God who redeems even from the very lowest depths of sin, that in no matter what way men are born, they are born children of wrath, and that they may be born again by the free grace of our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen.